Ballet Bird is a streaming site designed by former Pacific Northwest Ballet principal dancer Julie Tobiason. Ballet Bird offers ballet classes for anyone at any level of training that you can do from the comfort of your home or studio. After many years performing as a professional ballerina and decades of teaching at all levels of ballet, Julie is excited to offer her training for more people like you. Classes are designed for large and small spaces and for all levels. The low monthly membership fee is less than one in-person class and is accessible 24/7 with new classes added every month. Ballet Bird is a great addition to your regular in-studio training as well. Take advantage of the 10-day free trial and use the discount code COD25 to get 25% off through June 30th, 2023 at balletbird.com. Whether you are just starting your ballet journey today or you're a seasoned professional, Ballet Bird is the place for you. Visit balletbird.com or click the link in the show notes. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com/acast code acast. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro and I'm Michael Sean Breeden and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today on Conversations on Dance, we are happy to bring you a panel discussion on a very special project, the reimagining of La Bayadere. Joining us are Phil Chan, a final bow for Yellowface, Doug Fullington, dance historian and musicologist, and Sarah Roth, associate professor and chair at Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. The trio talk with us about the idea to re-examine La Bayadere for a 21st century audience, how they are transforming the ballet while preserving its history, and Indiana University's important role in its creation. Good morning everyone. Thank you all for joining us. It's been a while since we've had a panel like this of esteemed guests. So, um let's just dive right in. Um Doug and Phil, we've had both of you on twice prior to this, but Sarah, it's your first time. So, we'd love to just get a little bit of an introduction to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your career and what's um led you to your role at IU right now. Oh, I'm so happy to get a chance to be on this program. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work you do for ballet. Um I have 
uh, a pretty cyclical life. I um, grew up in a very small town in Maryland um, and trained in Maryland growing up. And upon graduating high school was given uh, the directive to go to college. And I ended up at Indiana University Bloomington at the Jacob School of Music at the ballet department. Um, I completed three three years and graduated um, under predominantly the guidance and leadership of uh, Violette Verdi, along with Jacques and Virginia Sesbrin and Drisha Sales and a group of wonderful teachers that came along while I was here. But Violette was a really big change agent in my life and um, took took this beautiful moment for me and saw something that no one else had seen in my dancing. And she really fanned that flame while I was here. And um, that's a pretty big power that she was able to wield over my life story. And she took that power even further when she uh, she got me, um, she wrote a beautiful recommendation love letter for me to Boston Ballet's Miko Nissanen. And I went there and auditioned and then uh, was accepted um, in a 200 person cattle call into Boston Ballet's Corps de Ballet and um, ended up dancing there for 14 very happy years, uh, doing that broad range of beautiful repertoire that they perform. And then upon graduating from my professional career. Oh, um, I like that instead of retiring. (laughs) Into into my, um, because it is, I don't believe in the Graham quote that we have two deaths. I really think we have two lives. And I feel like that's what um, that's what getting in my education early gave me is because I transitioned seamlessly out of Indiana University into a leadership role here at the Jacobs School of Music Ballet Department, where I had trained under Violette, who's no longer here in physical presence, but very much here in spirit and uh, carrying on that good work, bringing in great repertoire, like what we're about to discuss today, and um, just really having happily getting the opportunity to work with a beautiful group of artists that are in a very vulnerable part of their career where they're trying to figure out who they want to be for the ballet world. And Mm. that also lends itself to the discussion at hand today with the Bayadere Project. I love that. All right, Phil, it's time to catch up with you. (laughs) It's been about two years since we last spoke with you. What's really cool too, is you kind of teased this project. So we know it's been going on for quite some time. So before we get into that, tell us what else you have been up to over these past couple of years. Yeah, um, Doug and I were going through our emails and by the time it premieres, we will have been working on it for six years, which is (gasps) kind of crazy. Um, but you know you gotta you gotta figure out how to make these things happen and manifest them. But um, no, I, I've been good. Uh, I've been running around like crazy the last uh, little bit, um, doing a couple of fellowships at, at Harvard at Drexel University. So really looking a lot of at the roots of these Orientalist portrayals. Um, I'm about to go to Paris for a month uh, in April um, to study at the French Art History Institute because that's sort of like the root of French Orientalism is a lot of the archives. So um, wow. I'm really excited to go there and sort of be a ballet nerd and also live in Paris and just eat and, (laughs) um, you know, uh, number one priority. Yeah. I'm, I'm also directing a production of Madama Butterfly for Boston Lyric Opera that will premiere this September. So really thinking a lot about, we have these texts that are problematic, you know, but also beautiful, you know, that are racist, Mm -hmm. but also have something that speaks to the human condition or beautiful music or choreography. And how do we not just say, well, it's inherently white supremacist. Let's throw it out. It's inherently colonialist. How do we reimagine it? So it's not just for European people, but for 
a diverse community that we live in, which includes, you know, white Americans too, who are not Europeans. So how do we make this work bigger without canceling tradition? Um, and so by there sort of this, this perfect storm of a lot of those conversations um, that I've been having as an advocate, but also as a writer. Um, yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's been busy. Um, Bill, you have a new book out, no? I do. Uh, it's called Banishing Orientalism. Um, and it's came in, it came out of a fellowship I did with the New York Public Library in 2020, where I looked at um, about 100 Orientalist ballets from Louis XIV to today. So really asking the question, like, you know, when we set a story in India or China or the Middle East, what are we doing? What what are the only things we can say when there's this exotic setting? But also, what did Orientalism as a genre do for ballet? How did it, it help ballet expand and innovate um, as an art form? Um, and so that's really what the book is about. Um, and I do talk about this production of Bayadere in the book as well, but just really thinking about this larger question of how do we shift ballet, opera, these Eurocentric art forms into a diverse 21st century audience, right? Because like we look at our audiences and we're like, oh my God, everyone's so old and white and like the art form is dying. But then we're still doing things the way we did 200 years ago. And like, we're not, <laughs> we're not, we're not really understanding why those t- two things are going together when it's, you know, this is a big part of that shift. So, um, you know, as a person of color in this pr- predominantly white art form, how do we, how do I make space for myself, you know, by getting rid of some of these outdated, offensive, caricatured, stereotyped depictions of non-white people, but also how do we keep this ballet tradition alive that I also grew up in and that like there's so much beauty and there's it's so important to know where we came from um, especially as someone who's interested in pushing the boundaries forward so if you don't really get the opportunity to dance these roles and embody them in your body and feel the music and the transitions and the 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 structure of these dances how are you going to break the art form forward how are you going to innovate you know how do you how do you know what's already been done or what's been What's cliche unless you've actually done that work? So um, just I think that is the you know where we are um, with this process, and you know just want to pass the ball over to Doug because it's really like the perfect storm of how to do this work together. It's like my advocacy can only go so far, and Doug is like brilliant musicologist, dance notation expert. Um, but yeah, also I think we're both asking a similar question of like how do we keep this tradition alive? Um, but do it in a way that isn't problematic. Right. Let's let's rope Doug in. Doug, <laughs> can you tell us a, a little bit about, um, just give us some background on Bayadere. Um, what are the origins of the ballet? Was it a success upon its premiere? Just tell us a little bit about Bayadere in the 19th century. Sure. It uh, it premiered in 1877 in St. Petersburg. Marius Petipa was the choreographer and a, a co-librettist putting the story together, but he was inspired by uh, previous uh, works, The God and, and the Bayadere, which was uh, a ballet done in Paris earlier in the century, uh, uh, Shakuntala, uh, the uh, Indian story had been made into a stage work also earlier in the century. And also Petipa really kept up with current events. The Prince of Wales had just visited India uh, a couple years earlier, and that was documented in, in these magazines that he would subscribe to. And a lot of the public subscribed to like World Illustrated and things like that, where there would be drawings of 
of these events. And those were his uh, visual uh, inspirations for the ballet. Uh, Exoticist stories were exciting for the public. It was sort of escapist. It allowed them to, to travel, if you will, when they otherwise couldn't. Uh, and the ballet was successful. Um, the ballerina Ekaterina Vazem had a big success as Nakia. She was sort of the leading star at the time. Uh, the music is by Ludwig Minkus, who collaborated with Petipa for years. He wrote Don Quixote. That was uh, in the late 1860s. And uh, then Petipa revived Bayadere in 1900. And uh, at that time, it was uh, notated, uh, many of the dances were written down in real detail, especially the ensemble dances. So that's a major source for us. There's also a pantomime script written at that time, which is kind of amazing, because it lets us know what they really said. I'm saying this in quotes, what they said on stage in pantomime. So it's a real window into what what a stage work was like at this time. So this is a this is a real uh, these are sort of treasures for us because it allows us to really see and know what the what the ballet was like when it was made. As we're trying to take that then and reimagine, reinterpret it now. Where did you find some of these notations uh, for your research? The dance notations are, are fortunately at Harvard. They were brought out of Russia after the revolution. They were used by uh, uh, a former director from the Marinsky, Nikolai Sergeyev. It's what he used to stage the classics at what is now the Royal Ballet, uh, Giselle at Paris Opera in the 1920s, the Diaghilev Sleeping Beauty or Sleeping Princess production in 1921. So they really helped establish a lot of these sort of canonical classics in the West. And then they made their way to uh, Harvard at the end of the 1960s. Uh, the mime script uh, is held in Moscow at the Bolshoi uh, Theater Museum. But I was able through uh, colleagues to have access to that. And also friendly tip for dance nerds out there. Um, I was just at Harvard last month doing a fellowship and I was actually probably one of the last non-scholar, like in, internal people to touch the documents and handle them because they're in the process of being digitized. So they actually pulled out by Adair for me because they're like, oh, we're working on it now, but like, we'll pull it out for you. And so now they're just, now it's going in a box forever. And so, but the good news is for dance nerds that all of this will be soon publicly available oh. um, on the internet for everybody. So mm -hmm. anybody can have access to this. You know, you can really take a look at it yourself and um, it's just a source text that's so rich that um, just having access to it, I think, will be really beneficial for the whole field. Hmm. So could we talk for a second about what some of the major issues are with the way Bayadere is presented in its 21st century form today? Who wants to take that? Um, I'll, I'll take, I'll take it go. because I actually... Um, I actually opened uh, my book, Banishing Orientalism, about an experience I had um, going to the premiere at the Pennsylvania Ballet. Um, and, you know, basically, long story short, um, just seeing that the reaction from Asian advocates, South Asian people, you know, uh, New Jersey is and surrounding areas um, around Philadelphia are among the fastest growing South Asian populations in the United States. So really just thinking about how we are presenting this work that is about this specific culture in this specific place, but has nothing to do with that culture and is really just sort of like 
made up, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, especially when we don't have too many Asian representations, although Mira Nade on it at New York City Ballet is our first um, Asian principal woman there. So uh, hats off Mira. But, um, you know, there aren't a lot of South Asian um, artists working in classical ballet historically and even today. So um, just thinking about who is in charge of that narrative of, of representing this culture. So specifically, like, you know, having Hindu people rolling around on the floor, the sort of casual Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever. Um, often there's there's blackface um, in in the opera or a darkening of the skin or a racializing. Um, and just, you know, that that compounded, it's also beautiful. Like it's a, it's an opportunity for spectacle. I mean, all of those, you know, bikini tutus and elephants and palm trees and and you know, like it's gorgeous and opulent. So it's um it's really hard to to get rid of um, because it's so beautiful, but it's also highly problematic at the same time. So that was our conundrum. And as people deeply committed to not just the preservation of this history, but also of this specific ballet itself as a dramatic work, we start to think about, well, what else could it be? You know, I love that question. You know, when you're like a little kid and there's like a pencil and you're like, is this a rocket ship or a magic wand or a mm. broomstick? Like what else could it be? And we had to do that same thing with this notation like these are just squiggles on a piece of paper until we make them into a ballet every time we do that so how else could we turn those steps into something that was not about those indians over there but about us yeah. and that's i think where where doug and i started chewing on this idea of what else could it be and and there's so much richness doug i don't know if you can talk about the sort of the the era that we're we're we've been inspired by both in film and on the, on the stage and what was happening. I, I think too, with Bayadere, just the particular characters and the way they were handled. Um, the Bayadere itself is a sort of Western conceptions and conception. It's kind of the, the taking down of a more elevated female uh, role uh, in, uh, in uh, India and so instead of a sort of more authoritative, autonomous uh, person with agency, Nakia is a Baidere, is someone who has to rely on, rely on others, is thought of as a, a questionable uh, a questionable vocation or somebody that is, uh, there are a lot of negative connotations to the character. Also, the Fakirs, the, the Hindu uh, religious, are depicted not as elevated, but yeah, as kind of you know, um, crawling on the ground and 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 just much lesser. And also the way that uh, skin darkening was used, it was used for for those that were of the lowest rank in the uh, ballet troupe, either the youngest students or the the male dancers or supernumeraries. So that was reserved for all of the lowest rank people. So that gives us an idea of how. Uh, those with darkened skin reviewed at the time. So those things within Bayadere, I think, are, are problematic. The, that Western view or that Western kind of uh, filtering of uh, something they know very little about, but really through that colonialist lens of, of uh, these, these people or these particular roles are lesser or we're going to make them lesser. Mm-hmm. And and that, pres I think that presents a barrier too when we want 
people of color in this art form, we we need to question some of these depictions and say, hey, you know, is this a barrier for us? Um, and is there another way to save this history? And I think that's where this resonated with Sarah, who's on the front lines of these students, you know, who are coming in, who are not, who who are just a lot different than previous generations of students and what that looked like. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think students today, young dancers today are fully apparent in their questioning of the systems in place, which is something we, we want, we want to um, encourage their minds there. We want to encourage their hearts and spirits to create a world of dance where everybody is included. And especially as Phil pointed to like all of our audience members, we don't want anybody leaving the theater. We don't want to say, oh, well, it's just going to be a couple of people are going to feel really disgusted and uncomfortable. <laughs> no, we don't want anybody to leave the theater of a ballet performance feeling that way. Um, and I think that's where, you know, taking up this this work is really important in what it's telling the next generation needs to be done. That you don't, I mean, I have memories of darkening my skin to play these characters on stage in Viadere. I mean, that is a reality. And I didn't have the executive level thinking to say, this isn't right, or this isn't, this isn't something that it was for me, it was honoring the art form. And I loved the physical gauntlet of Viadere. Like it is an amazing rite of passage to me for a female presenting dancer to do however many 36 arabesques and suddenly arrive in place in seamless fashion, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a team building experience to go through the physicality of that amazing work. And so this, to me, this idea of not, because the, the choice for uh, artistic directors today is to say what the choice without Phil and Doug's project is to say, okay, we'll just do act three. Right. Like we'll leave everything right. else alone and we'll just do act three. But then you're omitting so many neat innovations in our classical ballet history in terms of movement that was chosen. Um, so I think this allows this honoring of the choreography um, while allowing for an inclusive context, uh, a new space for the story to take place is going to really um change the way students, the way future artistic directors, the way future leaders think about how we honor those classical works. I really like the way you're talking about how important this can be for students. And it, it just makes so much sense to be working on this, like you're talking about in an environment of students who are going to go on to continue to change the art form and evolve it. So Sarah, how did you and IU get involved in this project? Well, um, like so many other people during the pandemic, we were we were on Zoom mm -hmm. in as many different fashions as possible. And um, we were very, very lucky to have Carla Corbez on faculty. And Carla had developed a relationship and understanding of Doug's work in the ballet field and Phil's work um, through Final Bow for Yellowface. And she uh, she was really the originator of the idea to bring Doug uh, to bring Phil and Gina on to discuss Final Bow and its work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I immediately saw, even over Zoom, the inspiration that their leadership has lended my students. And um, in casual, you know, in telling of the tale, because they, it's been in his mind and heart for so long, Phil brought up Bayadere as an idea. And I think it was immediately after that meeting, I just emailed him and I was like, let's, let's talk about how this 
could be supported at IU. Just because of exactly what you said, Rebecca, like this should be an experimental field here mm-hmm. at this school for what the future could hold. We are not, we are beholden to put on a show of the highest quality and hold our students to the highest standard of execution, standard of execution, but we can afford to experiment with what the future can be. And that's what, that's what, I mean, this is a pretty safe experiment, but it's very, very exciting to see what, see what's coming from this talk and this process Mm -hmm. uh, for, for that population. So then talks just kept talking and we ended up (laughs) in in this space where we can now tell you when we're going to premiere this work in, in March, 2024. So it's really exciting. Yeah. That's so great. I'd love to hear now a little bit more about the specific concept for how we are stepping away from 19th century Orientalism in Bayadair to something that's going to be appropriate for our 21st century audiences. Maybe Phil, do you want to start? Sure. Um, So yeah, I mean, Doug and I, I think we started with the constraint of the music and the steps. So what, what else could it be within those things? We were really trying to think of how do we make this not about you, but about us, you know, and really just that's really the, the spirit and the ethos of this process. Um, you know, we were, we were inspired by looking at different periods. We were trying to think of what are reasons for or excuses for dances that would make sense. Um, and we sort of settled on, I don't know, this sort of singing in the rain dynamic, right? You know, if you imagine Nakia as Debbie Reynolds and Salar as Gene Kelly and Lena Lamont as Princess Kamzadi, you know, we we had the same love triangle that that um, crosses all of the the gender and um, hierarchy, political, you know, class. All of those things are retained. So those that has to be part of the story for the drama to make sense. And so trying to find a congruent, I think that's a good word, congruent setting for these dances and this music was really um, important for us. And so Doug was also talking about the 1920s, and, and maybe Doug, you can share about some of the, you know, sort of the dance hall vibe um, of these dances, but also looking at other film directors from that period, looking at Busby Berkeley, right? If you go see a Busby Berkeley film, you know, all of those views from above, all of the core work he uses. I mean, he was a choreographer and a director, and if you look at it, you you immediately see Petipa. It, it's it's all there. So I think we found right away both a period and a style um, that made it about us. And I think the the cowboy, the sort of western element, um, you know, it's sort of they're they're filming a a country western musical, and that um, that allowed us to not only choose a, a behind the scenes, on stage, off stage feeling for the dances. But also, you don't have to change your race to play any part in this ballet, right? And it's not uncomfortable. It's not weird for a performer of any background to play a cowboy. Everybody has been, you know, everyone's been a cowboy. Um, (laughs) And so also audience members can come to this and they'll also be able to see themselves in this fantasy. It's a fantasy that that is about them as well. So really trying to take this multi- multiracial approach. And Doug, maybe you want to talk about some of the historical mirrorings that we we found that might be interesting for folks. Yeah, I always thought looking at Petipa's character choreography in Bayadere, I thought, okay, he did, you know, obviously doesn't not going to know what 
real Indian dance was at the time. I mean, there might be the occasional visiting troupe to Western Europe, but he just developed a really kind of basic vocabulary. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all, just a basic vocabulary of character steps. And I always thought, these look like music hall steps to me. You take them out of the costume and I can just see this on a on a stage in a variety show. I can see it in musical theater. I can see it in vaudeville. Um, and that really then suggested sort of the 20s and 30s to me. Uh, I also just love the Gershwin musical Girl Crazy from 1930, which was a big hit. Uh, it's set on a dude ranch in the Southwest. And I and uh, the musical was uh, revived for a recording with the original orchestration that I just have always loved. And I thought also Minkus was writing just all these dance forms, waltzes, um, gallops, uh, polkas. And those just translate so easily to, uh, you know, soft shoe and a two-step and a foxtrot and and a tango and all these kind of dance forms uh, that were being used in the early 20th century. Uh, one of the guys who worked on that Girl Crazy recording is named Larry Moore. And so we have engaged Larry to reorchestrate the Bayadere score as though it were orchestrated by uh, Robert Russell Bennett, who was one of the orchestrators for the Gershwins, Jerome Kern, Cole Porter, Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, and we're using period sources. Uh, Larry has a period piano reduction and a period violin rehearsal score to to build this off of. I just last thing too. I I think Phil and I both agree that the highly melodramatic story of Bayadere that was put together in the 1870s really could take its place as a as a backstage drama of the kind we see in a lot of these early movie musicals where the drama happens backstage and then everyone goes out front and does a big, does these big <laughs> production numbers. And so that's kind of how we've slotted in the story and slotted in the dances for, hmm. for our reimagining. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After nearly a decade-long hiatus from live performance, Chris Masters Dance returns with Mausoleum at Brooklyn Academy of Music's Fishman Space, June 2nd to 4th. Reckoning with the dance field's history of systematic exploitation, Chris Masters Dance is building a mausoleum, a place to acknowledge and remember the past that has been laid to rest, making way for tomorrow that sets aside unsustainable forms of life and work. Don't miss Mausoleum at BAM this June 2nd through 4th. Tickets are available at bam.org slash mausoleum or click the link in the show notes. Um, 
I'm, I'm wondering um, what role these notations are playing. So you found things that Petipaw actually choreographed. You found some of the pantomime. How much of this are you guys using and what's um, your process, um, Doug and Phil, for, you know, collaborating together on this, reading it, fitting it into kind of your new time period? Well, with the with the mime script, uh, because of the way the music's written, you can tell there are themes and passages for certain characters, and we can kind of link up, or we can link up these mime conversations to specific passages of music. So Phil and I have put together a document where we side by side have that uh, the Bayadere script and what portions of music, and then how it's going to be in in the new work. Dancing wise, I'm really going off of the notation. Um, it gives, in many instances, the absolute full body work, what your head's doing, what your hand's doing. They held their hands a lot with the wrists flex, like you like you see a lot with Fred Astaire dancing. And I thought, oh, man, all these things that we might not do in ballet now, we can actually do here because they have that period feel. I'm doing a lot of research looking at dance on film from the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, anything that has a sort of Western setting, uh, looking at uh, Agnes DeMille Rodeo, even looked at Western Symphony the other day, and there's one of these funky <laughs> character steps that the men do in the finale coming in from the side to the center. I thought, oh, man, that's this this really odd kind of hobbling step that's in the notation. So I'm trying to make a lot of these links. Uh, I love that step. To, to yeah, very I, fun step. To, uh, uh, right? And it's all it. over the notations. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make all these connections to uh, take this movement off of paper and get it on people in this new context. Mm -hmm. But I think another thing we're thinking about too is the impact on contemporary audiences, right? This is This ballet was premiered in the 1870s. And so we have changed as a society since then. Um, a key example is when you hold your heart and then you point two fingers in the air, what does that mean? We we know what that means as ballet people, right? Like I'm gonna love you forever, right? Yeah. But like your normal people you meet on the street have no idea what that means. And we forget that. And so if you're bringing a new friend to the ballet to see that moment and someone points at their heart and points at the sky with two fingers, your friend is sitting there going, wait, what does that mean? What, do, what does that mean? What, what did they just do? Wait, now that I've been thinking about that, I've just missed what's happened. Wait, who's this character? Oh, now I'm not paying attention. I'm too dumb for this. I don't understand ballet. This is not for me. Oh my God, I'm so nervous now. I'm deeply uncomfortable. I've now forgot what's going on. Where am I? Oh my God, I need a drink. I'm definitely leaving it intermission. All because, you know, like that is the, the yeah. train wreck in someone's brain when they're coming to this for the first time. And so in our version, that same moment when Solar comes up to Nikki and he points his fingers in the sky, in our version, he comes up to her and he reaches into his back pocket and he gets down on one knee and he proposes to her and everybody in the audience will know what that means. And yes, are we losing something? Yes, the, that gesture of pointing in the sky, that that's lost. But look at society, that's also lost in the world. Nobody does that. Nobody knows what that means anymore. So maybe that's okay to lose if what we gain is someone not losing themselves in the story and feeling like they understand it and they are part of it and they get it and they're on this emotional journey with us as opposed to feeling 
like you're stupid or did they just do a Nazi salute? Like what's going on? Like, you know, like you, it, it, there's so many other cultural meanings that have la- been layered on. Let's keep it simple. So that's another part of our process too, is questioning is the intention matching the impact? And if not, right. how do we have to change it? Well, I love that too, because what new choreographer is making a narrative work, you know, like say they're doing a one act, whatever, with a little narr- narrative work, they're not going to use pantomime, classical pantomime. So it's already kind of lost anyways, right? I mean, it's, you're just kind of bringing the two together. So I like that. And Sarah, I can't help but kind of think about all this behind the scenes work, all this research that they're doing that really lends itself well to um, academia and to your students. So what kind of experience are they getting also kind of learning about the history behind this work now that you guys are starting um, to be in the studio with it? Well, we're, we will get in the studio with it. We're not quite in the studio with it yet, but I'm looking forward to, um, I'm just looking forward to them being a part of the process of uh, bringing a ballet forward from notation. I mean, most dancers today don't get that opportunity unless you are part of a Cranko ballet that's being staged or, you know, somebody mm-hmm. brings in that giant binder and you know it's going to be a really uh, a really uh, big work being set. Um, so I'm excited for that element of it. Also, we as a university, I mean, we as the Jacobs School of Music, you know, it's the number two school of music in the world or something like that. It's there's such a wealth of scholarship here that's interested in this project. Um, as soon as we met with uh, our dean, uh, Abra Bush, and posed this, I mean, it's like you could see the bubbles starting to boil on the water. Like everybody is so excited to be a part of um, a part of this conversation. Uh, Doug is going to be speaking with our uh, musicology colloquium when he is on campus with us. And um, Phil has already uh, Phil and Doug met with students when they were in town um, just what feels like yesterday, but was actually in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, just some, some beautiful unfoldings. Uh, I even feel um, when you, I'm, something that sticks in my mind was the way that um, just light is shed upon creativity and how um, what, what Phil had my students do was close their eyes and picture an alien um, from another planet. And how would you picture an alien? And uh, Phil, I'm probably kind of completely mess up your your teachings right now, if you're going to do it somewhere else, but that, you know, picture an alien from outer space, like in your mind's eye, what do you see? Like, is the skin green? How does it move? How many arms does it have? All of these different things. And, um, you know, that creative outlet of othering is what was being used in a very negative space in the past, but they were using that sense of, well, what is a person from another country like? How do they move? They used it to kind of get out of their own box and what they had been doing um, the whole time. So I think uh, in this in this reimagining is uh, unlocking a new way of thinking about uh, creativity and how we can how we can uh, open ourselves up to new things without creating problematic situations for others. So, um, but all of these conversations that are happening lend themselves to this. Uh, it it isn't just an academic mindset though, because I don't want this to be something where it's oh, it's a university like they should be doing right. this, we shouldn't right. be doing this. Because mm-hmm. I think it is, 
it is uh, smart people talk, but it's not <laughs> not in the sense that it's not something everybody should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and many of our com- uh, many of our companies in these United States are are taking steps forward, and I think that's a beautiful a beautiful thing to highlight. I think um, I think though I, I agree with you. The academic conversations surrounding this are very intriguing to our university, um, yeah, yeah. but but everybody can be having them. You can all have them out there. <laughs> Well, I think it's important to note that we're the only production of BioDare in North America um, since 2020 or, you know, since since COVID, right? So, like, this ballet has otherwise been canceled and we're not canceling it. <laughs> we're doing quite the opposite, you know, and, and we're doing it in a way that is um, both deeply honoring tradition and heritage and is quite a conservative approach, but also doing something that is radically forward thinking and, and opens it up. Um, and also not just with this ballet, but shows that there's so many other versions of by dare that you could do. You know, if if Russia weren't so um, unpopular right now, you could also set this ballet in Russia, where you have the czar who has to choose between his his wife, the 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 empress, and he was having an affair with the prima ballerina of the Mariinsky, the temple dancer, right? And at the end of the 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 ballet the whole temple crashes down, right? The Russian revolution. So if you wanted to stage it in Russia and have that be your story, you could also do it that way and keep the dances. And just this, this approach just shows that there's so many other ways to do what we've always done if we have a little imagination and we really don't want to be racist about it. It's just, it's actually fun and easy and generative. Right. How do you distinguish between works like Bayadair that have... Um, you know, intrinsic artistic value and works that just either because they're so entrenched in Orientalism or maybe they're just not that important to begin with. How do we make that distinction? What what are we going to save and what are we going to leave behind? I think it's got to be something that really we see the potential for the past like see what it was and and we there's value in looking at it from where we stand now there's present for there there's there's something of value for the present so there's something that we need to see in this work right now and that also there is value for the future generation um and i think you have to check all of those three boxes for it to have enough value that it's worth reimagining a lot of these works have just value to look at it in the past for example, Birth of a Nation, great film. That's I, I don't need a remake of it today, nor do I want to see a remake of it in the future. So it is it is good where it is. And let's look at it in the context of where it is for what it was, right? But a work like By Adair, you know, it's a live performing art. I, I'm curious to see what it looked like in 1870. I'm curious mm-hmm. to know, to see it today in this moment. Um, when we we do want a little fun, we just came out of a pandemic. Let's let's do this big, grand, fun, exciting romp, you know. And I also think future generations will want to still keep doing this and saying, "Hey, let's keep chewing on this. Let's feel the challenge." You know, Sarah was saying, "Let's rise to the challenge of this work." So I think that's that's my um, sort of goal poster or barometer, if you will. Yeah. I also, I think it's really interesting you brought up film. I hadn't thought about it like that before, you know. But but ballet is inherently flexible as it 
lives and dies in the moment. So if the moment is past, you don't have to recreate it exactly. Whereas something like Gone with the Wind is Gone with the Wind and it will be that way forever. So you have to either add context or move on or or what whatnot. But ballet does have that flexibility to um to evolve. So that is it's a plus for our art form. For sure. And I just want to I want to bring up again the fact that you know, Bayadere is a ballet where it brings up the level of the company performing it. It always brings up Mm -hmm. the group of individuals that, that corps de ballet that has to work together in such, with such synchronicity is building not only a relationship to each other, but uh, their dancing level is improving. So it's like one of those swan lakes, you know, it's like an etudes in that, that regard that, um, and I think that's so worth preserving. And I think that's something to look to when you're mm-hmm. when you're canvassing how to how to preserve the work and which works to preserve is uh, what kind of education do they provide in terms of our physical growth mm-hmm. as dancers? And I th- I've always felt that. I mean, the career your career is an education. Your career is this amazing curriculum of movement that lasts the test, you know, it it spans your life as a dancer. Mm -hmm. So you want it to be filled with these markers that change you for the better Mm -hmm. through the physicality of what you're doing. And then the hope is that it is a story that is compelling, that the audience loves that. But we as dancers, we know this, we've been a part of works being created where we're like, I don't understand what's happening on stage, but I'm having fun <laughs> through the physicality of, right. of movement that's happening or right. not in the sense that I don't understand what's happening or is like the audience might not be having the experience I'm having, but I'm enjoying the physicality right. of this. So let's make the audience have the great experience too, mm-hmm. while we're right. going through this physical learning. That's so good because I I think there's such a tendency for companies to set full, you know, program full lengths because they sell tickets, you know, or it's, you know, just an easy grab to get people in. And sometimes the dancers are like, oh, you know, God, Romeo and Juliet again, you know. So this is kind of I, I like that idea that here's something classic that can still bring people in in that way. But there's an exciting element to it. There's something that's feeding the dancers as well. And and kind of giving everybody that experience from from both physicians. I like that. You guys are going to be premiering this in March 2024. What is it going to look like over the next year? What is this process going to be like? Well, Doug is a, a wizard of ballet scheduling. <laughs> In addition to being a passionate ballet nerd, um, and has every um, every item uh, laid out, and how long he anticipates it taking to teach. So, uh, I'm really excited to put that into our own schedule. Um, but if you, Doug, if you want to delve into a little bit the the amazing organizational skill that you wield. <laughs> Uh, well, well, right now we're uh, Larry's working on the score. There's about forty odd musical numbers uh, in the ballet, and he's doing about two a week. He does them longhand, scans them, sends them to me, and I'm computer setting them. And then we make MP3s wow. and share them. Phil's got them, Phil's and they all they sorts sound, of they sound really good. <laughs> they just sound really good. And music will be such an important part of setting Bayadere in a new place, in a new era. 
Um, and then, you know, Phil and I will be and are working on the plan for uh, the action scenes, just how the music fits the action. And that will really be Phil's uh, area, uh, developing the characters. So we're still fine tuning that and we're uh, researching our ideas still for costuming and set so we can provide our collaborators at IU with as much research as we can. But we'll really start in December once IU has finished their Nutcracker. Um, we'll go for a week there. I want to set kind of some of the technically the hardest stuff. And then we'll come back at the end of January in 24 and just really work through to the premiere. But yeah, I really like, I like to have a plan. I worked for, it's still work, but I worked full-time many years at PNB here in Seattle, which is a repertory company rotating all kinds of ballets. I mean, we all know how this goes for the large companies now that do do constantly changing rep. You really have to have a good plan for how long it's going to take to teach, what you anticipate, what's the best point to start something so that the dancers will have time to to master it and to feel really secure doing it. So yeah. I did want to say what if I can, just one other thing I love about working with the source material is that with Bayadere, it really comes down to us through this 1940s production that was made in the Soviet Union, where there were lots of changes to the choreography. I mean, the framework is there. But just a lot of small things about use of quasi versus FSA. And are you facing upstage or downstage? And what's the tempo going to be like? And I'm really looking forward to kind of wiping that slate clean, really recovering a lot of speed in the choreography, which I do think some is something that 19th century classical ballet really needs now is to recover the mm -hmm. sort of speed and brilliance of that movement. Mm -hmm. And just that broad step vocabulary, maybe steps that have gone out of fashion, maybe now that it's 2023, 24, they can come back into fashion. Can we risk doing a step that we wouldn't have done in the 1990s now? Are we okay doing that step? So I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to, to work on these kind of things with the, the student dancers. Well, we have a very packed year ahead of us, I presume, but I'd love to just, let's fast forward to March, 2024. And I just want to hear from each of you what, what you hope the impact is on the students and the dancers, the audience. Um, what do you hope that this production, um, how it impacts the community that will be viewing and performing in it? Sarah, Sarah you want to go first? I'll start us off. Um, let's see, March 2024. We'll be here in a minute. <laughs> I am. I am so hopeful that this community uh, in Bloomington, Indiana feels the weight and importance of what it's been a part of in viewing, um, this La Bayadere reimagined. Um, I really feel like the dancers will, I know the dancers will, I hope they will, but I also know they will, um, come away from this project, understanding how to tell an inclusive story not only how to dance well, not only how to refine their technique to perform a rigorous classical work, but how to tell a story, not only to be entertaining and engage an audience, but how to tell a story that can be told this day and age and on into the future, including people, uh, all people, um, 
with a sense of belonging in the theater for everyone who leaves. Um, so that is my hope, that they come away with the tools that they need to use their imagination the way Phil has, the way Doug has in creating this project. Mm. That's beautiful. Phil? I, I, I'm, I would just say, you know, looking at how big the Nutcracker is as a phenomenon um, and how much money it brings in and how many different types of Nutcrackers there are, like the diversity we have of Nutcrackers doesn't make it smaller or a threat to the ballet. It's only made it mm. bigger and made it a thing. You know, the fact that it went on TV made it bigger. That's why we do it every year is because, it, you know, it went on TV in America. And so the fact that we have so many versions of it, um, what if I Dare could be like that too? What if Swan Lake could be like that too? What if we just let go a little bit um, and just mm. reimagine some of these works, especially if there are racial problems in there? But like, just like let go just a little bit because we did that with Nutcracker and look how big it's become. So can we do that with other ballets too? I mean, what if there's, this inspires a renaissance of Bayadere's and 20 different new productions all reimagined in different ways. Like, great, awesome. <laughs> like, you know, and, it, and if that can also bring in money to support artists of color making new work as well um, and complement to that, great, even better. You know, that's, that's what I'm hopeful for. How about you, Doug? I echo everything that Sarah and Phil said. Also, just for the show itself, I hope it's beautiful. I hope it's fun for everyone. I hope it's entertaining. Uh, I hope it has that organic feel like you can believe it was meant to be this way or that the story was meant to be this way. And these steps fit this music so that that new context feels really uh, like a great fit. And I think that will help accomplish the kind of things that Phil just spoke about. I'm looking forward so much to the teamwork. I know we're going to feel with the students and all the collaborators with Sarah and everyone at IU. And yeah, I hope that, uh, you know, we're doing all we can to, to, to suggest a model for uh, working with canonical works to kind of open up uh, more possibilities. Yeah. And do you guys have hopes for this production in the future that maybe it could be go on to have a life after March 2024? Uh, I think so. I think that's <laughs> that's that'd be a very nice uh, thing is this is sort of a, we are just so blessed to have this opportunity to try this this out at IU and really use it as a laboratory space. I mean, just what an incredible privilege that we wouldn't get in a professional setting. So um, just really incredible for us to have this process, to have the space and the time to try it out and work out the kinks and get the music the way we want it to sound with a really incredible orchestra. <laughs> you know, just all of those things. Um, I mean, I think even just looking at our schedule, like how many rehearsals do we have with the orchestra? Just because it's also a great experience for the students, you know, like as opposed to being like, mm -hmm. well, no, you only get this much time because that's all we can afford, you know. And that's right. just the reality in a professional setting. So, um, yeah, if, if companies in the future want to say, okay, we've we've seen you guys, you know, make this work, and we want to bring this to our company too, as as sort of the the now full Broadway run, like we are game for that. And I think that's also is so good for IU because it shows it as like, you know, this is the leader and a launching pad for new, exciting, innovative art. So, yeah, 
we we do have a few a few a few folks coming to the premiere so um if you see that 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 weird New York to Atlanta flight or to to Bloomington <laughs> flight, you'd be like, oh, there's a lot of ballet people on that flight. You'll. <laughs> it's not a direct. Flight. Yeah, I know it's not a direct flight. <laughs> um, well, thank you all for joining us today, and I really hope that we can circle back March 2024, and so that we get a view of the process now and then as we go through it. Uh, it's such an exciting project. And we hope that our listeners will fly out to Bloomington for the premiere. I want to be there. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Sounds great. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Conversations on Dance is part of the ACAST Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.